Amen. Well, this morning you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. Um, I'm going to give you, go ahead and give you a caveat now. About 14 hours ago, I was still on a plane, headed back from Turkey. So uh, that's just my little disclaimer for what you're about to hear. Uh, don't hold it against me if this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but we trust that God's word is powerful, right? Even to speak through those of us who are jet lagged and, um, and, and distracted. And, and we're going to trust his word to do it again. Uh, this is a sweet passage that's hard to hear. Uh, because it hits us where it hurts. Um, recently I came across this column. Really interesting column. About some studies that have been conducted using one of Google's new, newer search engines. So Google Books, you guys know probably about Google Books. They've cataloged and sort of scanned in and made searchable millions and millions and millions of books. Well, recently they released this search engine of 5.2 million books, to be specific. 5.2 million books from 1,500 all the way to 2,008. That's the, that's the time span. So sociologists have just been all over this to try to see what kind of things you can learn about trends in society from what kind of words, for example, are used in their books. So now you can just type in a phrase and hit search, and it brings it up. When it was used, you can, it'll, it'll break it down analytically for you, and you can trace what words were popular when. And it's not like precisely scientific, I guess, on its own. You know, you have to do some work to put these things in context. But at the very least, it gives you a hint at what people are into, how they thought about themselves. And one of the most interesting uses of this search engine so far has been a couple of studies on what kind of words we tend to use about ourselves and our communities. Um, One study found that between 1960 and 2008, so just in basically that 50-year period, individualistic words, words about me, overshadowed communal words, words about us, dramatically. So words words like self and unique and phrases like, I come first, and these are, these are actual ones in the studies, dramatically overshadowed words like share or community or united. One, another study, this one by a guy named David Klein at George Mason University. This one was interesting to me because of just how specific it was. It said the word preferences, right? Preferences was barely used at all before 1930. Preferences. After 1930, it surged. And it goes hand in hand with what we know has just happened in human society, especially in the West, where we have so much, right? We now have options, and it's awakened the worst in us. What we're learning as parents of of a toddler is that options are, are not, they are the enemy, right? They are not our friends right now. There's something about giving our son options, about appealing to his preferences that just flips this switch in him and makes him more obviously and overtly selfish, right? Because he realizes he can have what he wants. Preferences are something that, you know, before 1930, people just, they, they had preferences, but they just kind of lived, especially people who weren't in the upper, upper crust, they just lived with what came, right? They didn't have any other choices. It was a hard, way, hard life, hard world to live in. Preferences were a luxury they didn't have. And as things have become more comfortable, we've also become more more individualistic, more about us and what we want. And that's precisely, I mean, the interesting thing is that, is that in, in Corinth, 2,000 years ago, very different time and place, they were as close as any society I've read about at that time from 2,000 years ago to where we are now. They actually had, unlike so many other places in the ancient world, 
they had some freedom to, 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 to pick things that they wanted, do what they wanted to do. They had money. They were a growing society. There was, it was possible to climb the ladder there because the city was pretty new. There was a lot of new money thrown around. And so they actually had options, right? And they were claiming them. It had flipped a switch in them, it looks like, and, and, and exposed their selfishness in, in a way that some other churches had not experienced. And Paul's been hammering them for it. I should say, actually, he's been preparing to hammer them for it. The first three chapters, or first couple chapters we've looked at in our study of this letter, Paul's been sort of laying the groundwork. He's called them out once, but he's mostly just been talking about Jesus and the cross and how their obsession about who they are and about how they're better or worse than others, their obsession with wisdom and status and reputation was way out of step with a gospel that saw the Son of God himself empty, emptied on behalf of others, poured out in a way that's always been foolishness. Paul's been helping them see that their attitudes and their actions don't match up with the gospel. And in this chapter, he actually, he lowers the hammer. It's a hard passage to read because it gets us, too. It's a harsh rebuke. It's a harsh warning. But it's loving, and it's encouraging. And we're going to sit under it this morning, even though it's hard to hear, because there is sweet medicine for us on the other side. There's sweet, sweet rest to be had when our true condition is opened up for us, exposed under the light of God's word, and then treated by the power of the gospel. That's what we're going to aim at this morning. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read this for us. And as I do that, would you please stand up with me in honor of God's word? This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, 
God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This passage, as I mentioned, hits us hard. And even more so than some other passages written so long ago in places, two places so different from ours, it spans the gap really well in an irrelevant and timeless way. Now, what I want to do is try to frame the material here in, t- in light of two questions. These are two questions I want you guys to leave asking yourselves and prayerfully considering the answers. Questions are, who are you? It's going to invite us to know how you, how you could even know who you are. And what are you doing with your life? Who are you and what are you doing with your life? And see, what, what Paul has been addressing in the first couple of chapters has been an identity crisis in this church. Rather than identifying with Jesus, they were trying to build a new identity for themselves. That's really what, you, what they're doing and saying, I'm with this guy, I'm with this guy. The point is, I, 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 here's who I am. Worship me, right? They were building an identity. Their identity was in flux. It was broken. And Paul's been challenging them there. He's been challenging them to see who they are in light of who God says they are in Jesus. And that's what he picks up again here in the first few verses of chapter 3. He's just said at the end of the the chapter, right before this one, he's just tried to call them out of of all this lining up behind human teachers and say, really, there's only two divisions that matter. There's only two classes. There's the spiritual, those whom whom the Spirit has worked in so that they love the truth of of the gospel, of Jesus and his cross, and there's the natural, those who hear the cross and they don't like it because of what it says about them or because it just doesn't seem quite right. There's the spiritual and the natural. That's all that matters. Paul thinks his friends are part of the spiritual camp, but here in, in, in chapter 3, he's saying, you're not acting like it. You may be spiritual, but I can't address you that way. You're not acting as if the Spirit has awakened you to the, to the message of Jesus and made you love it. I, the, most that I read say that Paul's being ironic here. He's using some of their language that they've been using to brag, and he's kind of turning it around on them. See, it was really important to them that they saw themselves as, as supernatural as not normal, as special and unique, as, as sort of hyper-spiritual, where other people were just sort of natural and, and, and slaves to their passions or whatever. We're, we're in this elite spiritual level. That's probably what was behind them saying things like, I'm with Paul, like the spiritual people, those who get it, they're with Paul and not with Apollos. Apollos is for the babies, right? And now Paul's turning that language around and telling them, you're infants, I can't address you as if you're mature. What matters to us here is why. What is it that defines them as infants or as, as purely natural? This is where we want to drill down because figuring out what it is to be immature, to be natural instead of spiritual, is the key to us latching on to the point of this text in our lives and letting us Letting our, allowing ourselves to sort of sit under it and let it judge us and prepare us to receive the message of Jesus. So why? What is it about them that put them in, that, that makes them or makes Paul describe them as, as infants in Christ or as behaving in only a human way? Verses 3 and 4 are the key. Look at those real closely. He says two things in these verses, and both of the things that he says are followed up with, aren't you just behaving like mere humans? You think you're super spiritual, but you're just behaving in the natural way. The two things that he points at are their jealousy and strife in verse 3, and they're lining up behind these different leaders, wanting to be seen as wise in verse 4. Verse 
3 says, While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Verse 4 says, When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? These words in verse 3, these jealousy and strife, there's a, there's a lot of overlap here. I don't want to make too much of the distinction, but jealousy is it's close to rivalry. It's, very, it's a competitive word. It's seeing what others have, wanting to have more of it, and sort of angling, elbowing for position, wanting to sort of push them down as a way of pushing yourself up. Strife is exactly what it sounds like, quarreling. It's, it's more competition, a combat with others that sees them as a threat to be neutralized. And verse, verse 4, I think, is just showing jealousy and strife in action. For them, the way it had bubbled to the surface was that they were lining up behind these teachers, hoping to look wise by which guy they liked. I mean, so for example, I might want you to... Uh, they were identifying themselves. The point is they were identifying themselves by lining up with one guy or another. So I might identify myself to you as somebody who likes to read books by William Faulkner, right? Because I want you to think of me as sophisticated, as having good taste in novels or whatever. I don't broadcast the fact that in the fall there are a couple of uh, weekly fantasy football columns that I like to read, right? Now I'm telling you, it's true. Don't broadcast that though, right? Because I want to be the guy who likes Faulkner. I don't want to be the guy who likes fantasy football columns. That's kind of what they're doing. I'm I'm the kind of guy who likes Apollos. Basically, if you want to sum it up, to be human, to be acting in a merely human way is to be obsessed with yourself. To be obsessed with your needs, with your status, with your rights, to see everything and everybody as a reflection on you. I read, the, I read a, a, a really interesting piece this week when I was riding back on the plane, a, a, a book that was talking about the, the mall as a kind of religious sacred site. Um, and how one of the things that, that marketing in the mall, one of the geniuses of it, this, the, the marketing that goes on in the mall, is that it understands that in the pictures that are there, they're offering you a way to be, right? A sort of perfect human. They want you to see yourself in this picture, to see yourself as not being there yet, but as, as, as a possibility for you, right? If you just buy the product that's there. What it also does, the social effect of it, this, this article went on to say, is that it, it teaches you to sort of always be summing everybody else up too, sort of assessing them. This weird thing that we do where just in, in a second we can have looked somebody up and down, noticed the kind of shoes they have on, the way they're fixing their hair, you know, what kind of jewelry they might wear, what kind of, uh, I don't know, what kind of, what, what the condition of their body or whatever. And that what we're always doing is making them about us, right? Your shoes... They say something about you, but ultimately they say something about me and whether or not I'm better than you, was what this article was saying. And that's exactly what Paul's calling them here. The point isn't what kind of teaching they like better, whether it's Paul or Apollos. The point is that they're obsessed with themselves, and they're always looking to identify themselves by something other than Jesus. And in that sense, they were as natural as you come. That's human nature. We can see why he calls it infancy, right? Why it's called infancy or immaturity. They're basically like small children. Children are, I mean, children are blessings from the Lord, right? They're beautiful, precious sources of joy. They're also obsessed with and resentful of what others have. They're jealous. They are ruthlessly protective of what's theirs by right. Mine, right? 
They're locked in on their public reputation. Not in the same way we are. But, have you, but is there anyone in this world who craves approval more than a child who's coming into his or herself and who loves to please their parents or those who are in authority over them? Their self-obsession, seeing everything and everyone in light of how it affects them, the Corinthians, is exactly what made them infants. Like children, they were obsessed with themselves. They were showing what's at the root of human nature, what's in all of us. However good we've gotten at hiding it, it's in all of us. Our identities are off kilter. And that sends us into a restless and frenetic search for something that will make us matter. And we'll put anything we can in service of that quest, just like the Corinthians did. Besides immaturity, I think another way to say what's going on here is that their sense of self and ours is broken, that it's pained, that it's stunted and insecure. It's no longer locked in on the one who made us to image himself. And that's made us sort of floating, restless. You never notice your toe, right, until you stub it, you break it, and then it's all you notice. Similarly, our sense of ourselves, our ego, is broken. It's in pain. And so it's all we notice. We're obsessed with it. And we're always looking to build it up to try to make it more secure. And that's, what, that's what's at the root of the, of the community issues that the Corinthians are having. And it's in us too. And it'll bring us down too. If not locked in on something bigger and better and more stable than anything we can do on our own. And that's where Paul points his friends in the next few verses where I want to point us. So as we ask this bigger question, who are you? How are you going to know that? And how are you going to answer that question in a way that isn't going to be antisocial? Right? Verses 5 to 9 have the answer. Here Paul turns them away from looking, locking in on humans and points them to God. God is the point. So what is Apollos, he says? What is Paul? These are just servants. They aren't doing anything except watering and planting. God's the one who gives growth. God is the one who has the power to actually change people. So why are you so obsessed with these people who aren't even the point? They know that about themselves. They're not trying to to pump themselves. Paul's going to say even more about that in the next chapter. But the Corinthians had forgotten it. Neither he who plants nor waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. I love the final verse. We are God's fellow workers. That's the way to sum up Paul and Apollos and Cephas and all these others they were obsessed with. But you are God's field, God's building. To be mature, the reason Paul points them here towards God and away from all these other distractions is that the only way to be secure, to know who you are and be good with it, is when you recognize that you are God's. The only way to know who you are is to know whose you are that you belong to him. This this belonging to God theme that Paul points to in these verses, pointing them away from humans onto God and then summing it up by saying, you are God's field, you're his. He's cultivating you and growing you. He's giving you everything you need. That theme that comes up here, he's going to run with it in what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. Just to help it drive it in, I at least want to point you that way to what's coming. Those people, what they have, what they want, how they think about you are not Factors in your identity, Paul's going to tell them. You belong to God, and that's who you are. So at the end of this conversation, at the end of chapter 3, 
verses 22 and 23. He's been, he's been laying this groundwork all along, and he kind of brings it to a head, and he says, look, whether, whether Paul or all, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, is there anything else that doesn't fall into that? He's basically saying, everything, it's yours. Because it all belongs to God, it's for him, and God has taken possession of you as his child. The world is at your disposal through him. That's who you are. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. He continues it in chapter 4. When you've got what you need, when, when you have everything that you need, all that really matters and tells you who you are comes as a gift from the God to whom you belong. So verse 4, 7 says, Who sees anything different in you? Everything that matters is something God gave to you. He's given it to all who trust in him. So why are you obsessed with how you're different from somebody else? What do you have that you didn't receive? You're going to brag about something? Seriously? That God just gave you? Like the 16-year-old kid who gets a Jaguar for his birthday and brags about it to the kid who's still riding a bike? As if he did anything to earn that gift? It's ridiculous. The mature see that. The mature see that, 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 that that's a ridiculous thing to brag about. The infants, those who are immature, don't get it. They're blinded by their self-obsession. Paul's calling them out of it to see that, that you have received everything you need through Jesus and that this and only this tells you who you are. Are you good with that? Is that enough? Friends, this, this is the key. Jesus and what his cross has bought for you? What if you could move past your obsession with what people think about you and your accomplishments? What if you could move past that? It's not, that doesn't register with you. What if you could stop being so hurt by what people say and what they don't say? What they do or don't do? How they fail you? What if you could do what you do as a student as a parent, as a medical professional? What if you could do what you do surely for the joy of it without the pressure to be noticed for it or justified by it? Sounds good, right? This rest only comes from one place. And as foolish as it may sound to you, it comes from Jesus' death on the cross. I don't know how to clean that up. It just comes from Jesus' death on the cross, which is a payment price that buys you a spot in God's family. The sickness that I've been describing here, that Paul describes, the pain that you feel, it comes from a sense of self that isn't just immature, it's broken. And it's broken not because of something somebody did to you, but because of your own sin. It's broken by a rejection of the only source of rest and peace, by this gulf that exists between us and the God that we were made for. But Jesus' death bridges that gap. Jesus' death justifies us. It tells us that in God's sight, we are who we are meant to be. And this gives us a new identity. It makes us God's possession, even his own children. Through Jesus, all is yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So you don't like who you are? Don't know who you are? The only way to change who you are is to connect with whose you are. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
if you'll embrace that by faith. You can do that now. Trust in Jesus. Now, now here's the second question that this passage sets us up with. And this one's a tricky one. And I've got about seven minutes to describe it to you. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the, in the verses 10 to 17, Paul switches subjects a little bit. He moves from God's field, us being God's field, to the image of building, of laying a foundation, which he's done, and of the stakes of what gets built on top of that foundation. Some things about this are pretty clear. Paul says, I'm the guy who laid the foundation, and the foundation I've laid is Jesus and what he's done. That's the only thing that'll hold for the building that is the church to, to stand tall and strong. It's, it's chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 that we looked at a while back. I came here knowing Jesus and him crucified. That's it. Because I know that's the only thing that's going to do anybody any good. That's the foundation, right? And no one can lay another one if the building is going to hold. But now what's got to happen is the building's got to get built up on top of that foundation. And there are huge stakes involved. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the things that catches me when I read this is all this language about rewards, about things that will be lost or gained because of the faithfulness of our work. You know, in a first reading, a sort of surface-level reading, it can seem really out of step with what we just read. I mean, didn't we just read that everything is God's, that he's the one who does all this work, he's the only one who decides whether this thing grows or not, and that, that all who do the work in the field, like planting and watering, are nothing? God is everything? And now in this verse, he seems to say, be careful how you work, because you're going to be rewarded for it or punished for it, one or the other. It seems a little bit out of step. And it's always hard. It's always tricky, to me anyway, to understand what the New Testament means by rewards for believers when the New Testament is, is all about grace, about God giving us everything that we have and everything that we need. So it's, it's tough to see how that works, and, and that's a tension that we just can't resolve here today uh, because of, probably because of the time and probably because I don't know how to resolve it perfectly, to be honest. But what I want to do is, is point you toward what I think is the main thrust of this passage. I want to do that quickly, and we can follow up. If you have questions about it after the service, I'll be around. Because I think inside the, the gist of this, for whatever mystery might lay on the edges, inside the gist of it is a crucial insight into how we are supposed to give our lives in and through the local church, to invest in each other, to build each other up on the foundations that's been laid. So here's, here's my take on what these verses are about. I already said whatever, whatever is meant here has to square up with the centrality of Jesus and weakness as strength, and it can't be used as a fuel to compare our work to other people's. You know, it can't be, whatever this reward language means, it can't be that, that, um, that ultimately I deserve something others don't deserve. Because that would, that would run against everything that's already been said. That's where the mystery comes in. So what does it mean? First, the details. Paul moves from the foundation he's laid, verse 10, to, to now what's going to be built on top of that foundation. He tells them to be careful what they use. Gold, silver, precious stones. Or are you going to use wood, hay, and straw? Stuff that doesn't work. Stuff that won't last. He warns them that each one's work is going to become manifest. Whatever you do in the church on top of the foundation that's been laid, it's going to be revealed by the God who sees and knows all on the day that is coming when things will be judged. And he uses the imagery of fire. A fire that will test what sort of work has been done. If the, if, the, if the work survives, it'll be rewarded. If not, it'll be, it'll be lost, exposed. 
Ultimately, if you bring God's church down, he even says, you will be destroyed. So what's this about? One of the things that's helped me most this week is connecting Paul's language on reward here to language, similar language on rewards in another one of his letters. One of, the, one of the commentators that I read about this passage pointed to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. Here's what it says. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? See how similar that language is? This language of joy and crown of reward, this, this attachment to the day when Jesus is coming. And he says, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Paul's understanding of reward, this is not the peace with God that Jesus has provided. This is a different sort of reward. His understanding of reward was the beauty of seeing his friends on the final day, loving Jesus and accepted by him rather than judged. They were his reward. Here's the way the commentator put it. Paul has a corporate understanding of salvation. That means like he sees it as a as, as something that brings in the body, that his, his, what he's building for, his objectives and, and his goals are about seeing others come to know Jesus, trust in him, and be accepted by him at the last day. His reward is that his churches will be saved with him. On the day of the Lord Jesus, when they pass through the judgment together, they will know that his work with them has been accomplished with frankness and godly sincerity by the grace of God, and that we are your boast even as you are our boast. I think this makes a lot of sense out of the reward being burned up because work that's built up not in light of and for the sake of Jesus isn't going to survive. If what you build into each other in the church is not deeper trust in Jesus but trust in yourself or some other substitute, that work isn't going to survive. And when Christ comes again, when the day comes, it'll be exposed. You won't enjoy the reward of seeing friends accepted by God in Christ. If a leader builds a church around himself, or if he builds it around other human values, if he builds it around stuff we talked about a couple weeks ago, branding, entertainment, perceived wisdom, then it's built around what's passing away, what just just isn't going to survive. And and therefore, there's not going to be any reward. The leader himself might trust in Jesus, might be saved, to use Paul's language here. But what he's done, what he's built, isn't going to last because it's not built in light of the foundation that is Jesus. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. The stakes of how you choose to build, of what you choose to build with, will be exposed on that day. Now, one of the things that jumps out at me, I think one of the most important details here is in verse 10. Because I think the most, most of this passage really does directly go to leaders who need to be careful how they lead churches. That's not lost on me. But in verse 10, I think he extends it to everybody. He says, let each one take care how he builds on this foundation. Paul's laid a foundation, and now he's writing to the whole church. And to the whole church, he says, let each of you take care how you build on this foundation. I think what Paul's getting at here, he gets at another place in the New Testament as well. That... Our faith, as members of this church, is our shared responsibility. That each one's faith is the responsibility of each other one in the church. And that our responsibility to each other is to constantly be pointing each other back to Jesus. 
to constantly be exposing in each other places, areas where maybe we aren't trusting him in the way that we need to, where maybe something else has crept in. Our responsibility is to build each other up into a deeper and more full and more complete trust in who Christ is and in him alone. And that is the goal of our lives. For the New Testament, the shape of the Christian life looks like the church. And it looks like us investing in each other. That's not often how we think about you know, the point of our lives, is it? Don't we normally think about other things? We, other good things. We think about our careers and what they might become. We think about our families. Maybe even we think about being faithful to Jesus, about keeping in faith and growing in faith in a sort of one-on-one with Jesus sort of way. But I think what this passage calls us to is to see our lives ultimately as to be given to the church because it's through the church that we help each other trust Jesus more. And we'll be held accountable. Here's the, here's the warning that sits at the end of this passage for us. That we will be held accountable by God for whether or not our investment in each other is centered on Jesus or some cheap substitute. And we need to let the seriousness of that challenge sit on us. And we need to pray together that God will keep us faithful and give us joy and confidence in Christ. I want to pray that for us now. Oh, Father, our, our hearts are fickle. Our tastes are ever-changing and so prone to get locked in on things that are passing away. And so we pray to you for the power of your Spirit to hold us fast, to bind our hearts to you so that we love what you love. And what we know that you love, what this passage has shown us, is that you love to see people trust in Jesus and not in themselves or any other substitute. We want to love that as much as you do. We want to see each other as opportunities for investment. So our prayer to you is this. First, help us to be so secure in Christ that we can forget ourselves and look to the interests of others. And help us to look to the interests of others not in a way that is self-serving, that will make them depend on us or feel better about us, but in a way that will clear out all false hopes and leave them seeing Jesus and loving him more clearly than they could have. Help us to be a culture of people who are invested like that in each other. That is a supernatural culture. It's beyond our abilities. And so we give you this responsibility. We give it over to you, knowing that it's ours, but will only be possible if you empower us. And we ask that you would use us to your glory. For Christ's sake, amen.